0: This E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Special Edition program is presented by DKB Med Radio. Welcome to the continuation of our eMultiple Sclerosis Review Special Edition focused on managing spasticity in individuals with MS. The Multimedia Expert Commentary section has already been published and is available without charge at eMultipleSclerosisReview.org. In that part of the program. One of our e-multiple sclerosis review program directors, Dr. Michael Kornberg, an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, described the current evidence-based research in three key areas in the management of spasticity. One, understanding the burden of spasticity among patients with MS. Two, the currently available therapies to address spasticity in this population. And three the safety and efficacy of new and emerging cannabis-based treatments for spasticity. Dr. Kornberg also reached out to some of the medical community's top spasticity and MS experts to provide additional commentary through brief discussion clips. In this part of our special edition program, we present the fuller discussions with those additional experts. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review, and I'm here with the aforementioned Dr. Michael Kornberg. Dr. Kornberg, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Bob. I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: Our first learning objective is describe the clinical manifestations of spasticity, its incidence in people with MS, and its impact on their quality of life. In the multimedia part of this program, you reached out to Dr. Scott Newsom, an associate professor of neurology from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, for an additional perspective about the burden of spasticity for people living with MS. Before we go to the rest of that discussion, if you would please tell us a little bit about Dr. Newsom and why you chose to speak with him.
1: So, Dr. Scott Newsom is a neurologist who is nationally recognized as a leader in providing care for people with MS. Um, he has recently served as the president of the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers, otherwise known as CMSC. Um And he has particular expertise in the clinical manifestations of spasticity, both uh, uh, as an MS specialist, but also as a world expert in stiff person syndrome. Um, and he also is an active clinical researcher who has led clinical trials and treatments
0: for spasticity. And with that as an introduction, here's the rest of the discussion between Dr. Michael Kornberg and Dr. Scott Newsom.
1: Well, Scott, thank you very much for joining me today for this e-multiple sclerosis review program.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: All right, so let's get started. Uh, our learning objective today is to describe the clinical manifestations of spasticity, its incidence in people with MS, uh, and its impact on their quality of life. Um, and so to begin with, can you describe for our learners what spasticity is?
2: Absolutely. I usually uh, like to tell learners that this is one of the most common symptoms and signs that we see in multiple sclerosis. And in fact, it's approximately 80% of people with MS will uh, experience spasticity at some point in their journey with MS. And about a third of those individuals will have what we deem as moderate to severe spasticity, which can certainly impact uh, the daily living, the quality of life of our patients. But to talk more high level, you know, spasticity is thought to be a primary symptom. Uh, which it, what that means is it's the direct damage to the central nervous system that ends up causing spasticity. So demyelination of certain uh, you know tracks, like the cortical spinal tract, is an example, and that uh, ends up leading to you know, motor weakness and spasticity that usually accompanies the weakness. Now, spasticity is tricky because it can be intermittent and subtle or it can be sustained. And the sustained piece of it is often involuntary uh, you can have superimposed painful spasms on top of the spasticity uh, now how do we uh, measure it at the bedside there's different rating scales that people use but i think the quick and dirty is that this is a velocity dependent sign on the exam so for example if you have someone's leg that you're trying to test for uh, their tone spasticity you know you pull it very quickly so velocity the quicker you pull over a longer amplitude you'll feel of that pull back and that's spasticity versus rigidity uh, where you'll feel sort of tightness throughout the entire motion. So I encourage learners to really go the entire length of pulling a leg or an arm because again spasticity can be very subtle uh, and almost imperceptible uh, unless you go, uh, you know, pull the limbs uh, completely out. Um, The other thing I, I would like to say as we've learned from different surveys, patients describe spasticity much different than what clinicians do. And I don't know, Michael, if you've had this experience, and I'll, I'll just give one antidote. Um, I've had patients come in and say, oh, I'm weak. And you do you know, your motor exam, it's like, actually, you're pretty strong. And it's not weakness that's impacting their gait. It's actually the spasticity that is just poorly described. Sometimes they say, oh, it's a tight feeling, it's pain, but really listen to your patients and do a proper exam. And I think you'll see that most of our patients will have some element of spasticity.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I think those are, especially the last point is is fantastic. I know for a lot of my patients, uh, they often describe spasticity as nerve pain. Um, and so it really is important to kind of drill down and, and parse that out. Um, so then building on that, um, so it's a great description of what spasticity is. Um can you tell us a little bit about how spasticity impacts function and quality of life for patients? Uh, what are its manifestations for them? How is it disruptive? Uh, you know, how do they describe it?
2: Absolutely. And so I, I try to think of this in sort of two components. So we have the physical manifestations uh, and then we have the emotional manifestations and sort of the what we would deem as secondary and tertiary symptoms, and this trickle- down effect, as I like to to refer to it as. And um so the physical part of this, uh, you know, many of our patients with even mild spasticity will have gait and balance problems. And the problem with that is over time, that can actually cause, issues in the muscular skeletal system, including you know advanced arthritis. Some of our patients will end up having sac- uh, sacral eye because of severe uh, spasticity. Um, but the one uh, thing that I want to bring attention to is fatigue. So when people have weakness in combination with spasticity, they use an incredible amount of energy just to move. And that could be as simple as trying to roll out of bed. And so when you hear your patient saying, oh, I'm so fatigued, Don't just assume that it's like, oh, because they're not sleeping very well, which can happen with spasticity too, but it could be because they're using so much excessive energy. Uh, And if you hear that, this is where I always try to think about incorporating other people to help with treatment, like physical therapists and energy conservation measures. A couple other things uh, from the physical piece household chores get impacted, walking up and down stairs you know, which we take for granted can be impacted. Driving, if someone has significant spasticity in their legs, they can't get their foot, you know, from one pedal to the next or upper limb spasticity. Hygiene, so a lot of people don't realize that if someone has adductor spasm spasticity, uh, that can cause hygiene related issues and intimacy, right? So intimacy, which is sort of a cross of the physical to the emotional. Now, just to say a few words about the emotional impact, uh, you know, we did this survey looking at uh, sort of non-physical aspects of spasticity, uh, which mentioned over a thousand patients uh, were interviewed, and some of the things that came to the top of the emotional impact: self-confidence was impacted, self-image. So, how someone was walking, people felt like, you know, others were looking at them strangely the connection with other people, uh, frustration and anger were some of the things that were brought up, a sense of hopelessness. and I, I, when i saw that i was just like oh my gosh, so some of my patients with spasticity are feeling hopeless just based on this one you know symptom and sign on exam. Uh, one other thing i'm going to mention is very importantly, many of our patients will actually think they're having progression in their ms based on spasticity, which we know spasticity can, you know, increase over time and not necessarily be related to progression. And so this is something that I think for learners, very important when people say, oh, I think I'm progressing. Well, is it because of increasing spasticity, not necessarily progression in their MS? So really, really important.
1: That's that that's a fantastic overview um and you highlight some some really important points um, and one uh, one other point that is difficult for me at times in clinical practice um is that uh spasticity is not is not always a bad thing for patients there there are times and ways in which it can ac- actually be adaptive um and so my final question for you is, number one, do, do you agree? And and number two, can you describe the ways in which spasticity can actually be helpful uh, and how you balance those helpful and harmful aspects in deciding when and how to treat someone?
2: Absolutely. and This is where uh, I've personally gotten into a little bit of a pickle with patients where, you know, someone comes in, they have a significant spasticity, and you're like, okay, well, We know that's impacting your gait. And so let's try to relax and make that specificity less. And then they come back later and say, oh, you know what? You gave me that X medication and I fell because my legs were now too weak. And so in terms of the adaptive maladaptive, as you were mentioning, so adaptive, uh, you know, we all need to have a little bit of, of tone in our body in general, to keep us upright. And so for people who have a considerable amount of weakness in their legs, they do need to have a a little bit of spasticity in order to keep them upright. So spasticity can be helpful in that aspect. Um, I will say for those that may have a little more uh, disability, uh, they will require some level of tone and spasticity to do things like transferring. So transferring off a bed to a chair or a wheelchair to the bed or, you know, um, and so you do need to have a little bit of spasticity and tone. So we don't want to get rid of all of that. Um, In the spinal cord injury world, there have been studies looking at um, preserving tone and its impact of actually reducing muscle atrophy over time, because you'll have that increased tone that will help work the muscles uh, in a way that keeps them sort of active. And so we don't want to completely get rid of the spasticity for those reasons. And then also bone health uh, and preventing uh, fractures, because if you fall in your limb noodle, uh, there may uh, be an impact on increased fracture rates, and there could be some vice versa there. In terms of the maladaptive, I will say the one thing that I will hear from my patients the most beyond the fatigue is pain. Spasticity can be quite painful for people. And how does that impact uh, the person? Again, is the impairment of activity activities of daily living. Uh, if you think about the maladaptive piece of it, Dressing, bathing, toileting, all these things could be impacted by the spasticity. Uh, sleep disturbance. We have a lot of our patients that say, oh, well, geez, in the middle of the night, I start off maybe on my side, but then I go to my back and my legs go crazy with the spasticity and the pain. Uh, and I had mentioned with the impact on emotional well being, which if you don't ask the question, you're not going to get the answer. And so I, I really encourage people to ask questions about emotional well being. As it relates to spasticity uh, because we know that when people have decreasing levels of functional independence that has this vicious cycle to impact people's emotional well-being including depression anxiety um you know i know you're going to have a separate session on treatment interventions but what i would like to say is that it really takes a team of people Uh, To treat even one symptom like spasticity. So, phone a friend if you need help from your physical therapist, your occupational therapist. Some people may need to go to the orthotic specialist. Uh, And, you know, it's not all about just prescribing a medication because it's easy. You know, non medication interventions, I think, uh, often are just as equally important, especially in treating something like spasticity. I don't know, Michael, what your take is on that, but I feel very strongly about that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I certainly could not have uh, said it any better myself. I, I completely agree. Um, and this has been uh, a very informative discussion. Uh, you provided uh, a large number of really important clinical pearls. Um, and so thank you very much for, for joining us and for sharing your expertise for this uh, e-multiple sclerosis review program.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Very nice conversation, doctors. Our learning objective for this section is describe the clinical manifestations of spasticity, its incidence in people with MS, and its impact on their quality of life. Dr. Kornberg, what do you see as the key points our viewers should take away from your discussion with Dr. Newsom?
1: So the first key point is that spasticity is extremely common in people with MS. Um, up to 80% of patients will experience it. Um, A second key point is that as neurologists, we think of spasticity objectively as a velocity-dependent increase in muscle tone, Um, but it's important to realize that the way patients describe spasticity can vary widely, Um, sometimes described as tightness, sometimes stiffness, sometimes pain. So being aware um, of the way patients uh, experience spasticity is important. Um, A third point um, is that the impact of spasticity on quality of life for people with MS can be not only physical, um, but also emotional um, due to fear or embarrassment that's created um, uh, from the manifestations of spasticity. Um, And finally, um, I would say it's important to remember that some degree of spasticity spasticity can actually be helpful in patients who have uh, significant weakness. Um, And so management of spasticity can be a balancing act in clinical practice.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kornberg. In the already published expert commentary section of this program, you detailed the current therapies available to address spasticity in people with MS. In that multimedia portion, you reached out to Dr. Alexia Sandoval, Medical Director of the Multiple Sclerosis Rehabilitation Program at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Tell us why you chose Dr. Sandoval.
1: Dr. Alex Sandoval specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation for patients with neurologic disorders, and he has a particular interest in patients with multiple sclerosis. Um, He's also an expert in the current treatment approaches for spasticity in people with MS.
0: Thank you, doctor. And now the rest of that discussion between Dr. Michael Kornberg and Dr. Alexia Sandoval.
1: Alex, uh, thank you very much for joining me today for this e-multiple sclerosis review program.
3: Thank you for the invitation.
1: So our learning objective today is to describe the current management strategies for spasticity, uh, including their efficacy and their limitations. Um, And so to start with, let me ask you how you assess spasticity in someone with MS uh, and what objective or patient-reported measures you use.
3: So I would assess the patient Ideally, really in person, um, visualize um, the affected limbs and muscles, palpate them, you have to touch them, uh, because you have to, you know, assess and grade the spasticity. Um, as much as possible, evaluate the patient when he or she is sitting, when she or he or she is lying down, uh, when they are standing uh, walking if they can, and uh, if there is a particular activity that bothers them with their spasticity, try to simulate and make them do that activity that brings out the spasticity. Uh, In clinical practice, I use the modified Ashford scale to grade the spasticity, uh, but I also have to ask the patient, how does the spasticity affect you in your daily daily life and at work? And we have to address those concerns.
1: So it sounds like you have some uh, objective physical exam measures that you uh, you kind of condense into the modified Ashworth scale. Um, you use patient symptoms as well. Um, are there any ancillary tests such as EMG that have any role uh, in evaluating spasticity?
3: So there are... Um other folks and mainly in uh, like research or academic settings where they can use EMG or, or ultrasound or other um, uh, modalities to evaluate uh spasticity, but in actual clinical practice, um, I do not use those equipment. Um, just use my hands and observation uh, when assessing the patient's spasticity. Okay.
1: And, um, we generally all like to avoid uh, pharmacologic agents when we can. Um, And I know there are a number of non-pharmacologic approaches to treating spasticity. Um, And so can you describe what some of the mainstays are for those approaches?
3: So always begin with a non-pharmacologic approach. I think number one would be see if there are any uh, uh, noxious factors that are stimulating the spasticity, any any pain uh, or any underlying uh, fever or illness or or infection that might be triggering the spasticity. So you try to eliminate those uh, as much as possible. Once you've done that, then um, the next step would be, in terms of non pharmacologic intervention, would be exercise, daily exercise, including daily stretching exercises. This can be um, done by the patient, uh, him or herself, or with the assistance of a caregiver. We may need to use some uh, bracing, if, if uh, particularly spastic limb. Um, so, And um, some people would use heating, can sometimes um, decrease your spasticity. Cooling sometimes can make it worse in some cases. Uh, so those would be the mainstay of um, uh, non-pharmacologic interventions. If needed, we may have the patient um, get involved with formal physical therapy um, to help them uh, with uh, with their spasticity.
1: So Alex, uh, patients often ask me uh, about alternative treatments uh, such as acupuncture uh, or mineral supplements. Um, I'd like to hear from you uh, what the the evidence is for any of these approaches uh, and how you counsel patients
3: about them. So in clinical practice, actually patients often come to you already having tried um, other um, modalities such as acupuncture or they engage in yoga or pool therapy um, to treat their spasticity. Um, So the evidence is weak to inconclusive for all these other modalities, Um, but as as long as they do not cause more harm and as long as it it does not uh, be such an out-of-pocket burden for the patient, um, it's okay. Uh, And if the patient feels some benefit from them, um, I'm, I'm okay with that, but it's good to know that the patients are actually engaged in these activities.
1: Great. Um, And so let's move on to pharmacologic Mm. therapies. Um, So both systemic and non-systemic. Tell us what pharmacologic therapies are available for treating spasticity uh, and what their pros and cons are.
3: So uh, very often, we start with an oral therapy to treat spasticity. The the most common first line is baclofen, uh, which is a, a pill. And another one that is either first or second line would be tizanidine, also another oral pill. Um, so these uh some pros. So these are easy to administer. It's a pill. Patient can take it once, twice, or three times a day and, and uh, can be started uh, right away. But uh, one uh, uh, con for these uh, medications is their side effects are sometimes not tolerable. Very often, they can have sedation or drowsiness as a side effect. And for a number of them, you have to be careful with the liver function because they can affect the liver. So you have to keep an eye on that. Um, So those are the common first lines, and you try to titrate the dose up as high as you can to effect, and as long as you can, uh, the patient can still tolerate the side effects. You may end up having to combine tizanidine and baclofen together for effect, again, as the patient tolerates. If you have focal spasticity, such as spasticity affecting particularly one limb, one leg or one arm, then you can employ Botox injections, botulinum toxin. And um, so these have to be administered by a trained uh, professional physician in the clinic. It is an injection uh, and uh, some of the pros would be, it would be just a uh, localized injection. It will have a localized effect and should not have any systemic effects such as sedation. But the con is that you do have to come into the clinic and you need to have somebody trained to administer it. And if it works, uh, it lasts about three months. So you have to keep coming back for repeat injections. Now, if you have really bad generalized spasticity, especially if it affects the lower extremities, in the end, you might need to, Im- to implant uh, a baclofen pump. So this is an implantable device uh, which delivers liquid baclofen straight into the spinal canal uh, and it is very good for very severe generalized spasticity, especially it affects the lower extremities. Um, so what is the the pros of this is that it can deliver baclofen in very small amounts, but with great effects since it goes into the spinal canal. Uh, you You have virtually almost no side effects as long as you titrate it well, because it doesn't go systemically. Um, but the con is that it is an implanted device, so it requires surgery to implant the device. You have to take care of the device, so you have to make sure that the patient has good compliance to come back to clinic for regular maintenance of the pump and to refill the pump because you can't run, let it run dry. Uh, the pump will last about seven years. So uh, if you want to keep using the device, it has the whole device. The pump has to be replaced about every seven years. Um, if all else fails. Uh, then we may have to resort to a surgical referral. And mainly surgery does not really um, manage the spasticity per se, but it manages the consequences of spasticity, such as the joint contractures. Uh, And a surgeon may need to go in and uh, do a tendon lengthening procedure, or he may have to uh, fix a malpositioned limb um, to facilitate function or comfort for the patient.
1: Well, Alex, this was a very informative discussion, uh, and thank you for joining me and lending your expertise for this e-multiple sclerosis review program.
3: Thank you for inviting me. Excellent discussion. Our learning objective for this
0: section is to describe current management strategies for spasticity, including efficacy and limitations. Dr. Kornberg? What do you see as the most important points our viewers need to remember?
1: So the first is that the evaluation of spasticity involves both physical exam measures as well as patient-reported symptoms, which are uh, equally important. Um, The second is that uh, first-line therapies are actually non-pharmacologic. So stretching, physical therapy, and avoiding triggers of spasticity are the first-line approach. Um, pharmacologic treatments for spasticity include oral therapies such as baclofen and um uh, but also focal Botox injections uh, and intrathecal baclofen um, for people with very advanced spasticity. Um, and the final point is that despite the availability of these treatments, um, oftentimes uh, they're not sufficiently effective for many patients and they can also have limiting side
0: effects. Thank you, doctor. So far in this program, we've talked about the burden of spasticity in MS and the need for more effective therapies than those currently available. We know that many patients with MS are asking their clinicians about the safety and efficacy of cannabis and cannabis-based products. To discuss cannabis as an effective therapy for spasticity in MS, Dr. Kornberg, you reached out to Dr. Michelle Cameron, a professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. Tell us about her.
1: Dr. Michelle Cameron is a world-renowned clinician scientist at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Um, She provides clinical care to people with MS and leads a research program that's focused on optimizing mobility and preventing falls in people with MS. Um, She is an internationally recognized um, expert in physical therapy uh, and in the medical uses of cannabis and cannabinoids. Um, So I'm very pleased she's joining us today to share her expertise with us.
0: Thank you, doctor. And now, Dr. Michael Kornberg and Dr. Michelle Cameron from Oregon Health and Science University.
1: Michelle, thank you very much for joining me for this eMultiple Sclerosis Review Program.
4: Michael, thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure and I look forward to it.
1: Our learning objective today uh, is to evaluate the safety and efficacy of new and emerging cannabis-based treatments for spasticity. So to start with, can you summarize the current state of evidence for cannabis-based products to treat MS-related spasticity?
4: Sure, I'd be happy to, Michael. So there have been quite a number of randomized controlled trials, so clinical trials, that actually support that cannabinoids reduce patient-reported spasticity. But there are a couple of caveats there. The effect is definitely modest. It's not like this is the uh, be all and end all and fixes all MS-related spasticity. And when they look specifically at clinician-rated spasticity as opposed to patient-reported spasticity, they actually don't find a statistically significant effect.
1: So one source of confusion, I think, uh, for a lot of uh, neurologists and patients um, is the the formulations of cannabis products that have been studied and what the evidence is. Um, And so can you tell us what formulations have been studied uh, and what the evidence is specifically regarding their benefits and their side effects?
4: Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'm going to back up a little into even what you mean by formulations. So if you think of Cannabis of your college days, smoked cannabis, that's a plant. That plant has a bunch of chemicals in it. Those chemicals are known as cannabinoids. The cannabinoid most people use cannabis for is its THC. That's um, what's fun to use. And then another cannabinoid that's there in large quantities has milder effects as CBD. The CBD is not intoxicating, THC is. So that's your plant cannabis and it's got all these things in it. Now we can back in and say, what have we studied for MS spasticity? Most of the products tested for MS spasticity are purified. They have a set amount of CBD and THC. They're not, they may be coming from the plant, but they're purified They have an exact amount And most of the formulations studied for MS spasticity have about an equal amount of CBD and THC and are taken by mouth. There's a little bit of research on more THC-predominant products, but the big studies are on this one-to-one equal amounts of CBD and THC in an oromucosal spray. So then you say, well, benefits. As I said earlier, these do show improvements inpatient patient-reported spasticity in a fairly large number of randomized controlled trials, side effects kind of as you might expect from cannabinoids. There's drowsiness, fatigue, some sort of imbalance, dizziness, increased appetite, the munchies, and then some confusion, some cognitive effects, although less clearly proven. Um, most people actually tolerate these medications quite well, but It's not surprising there are some side effects and there are drug-drug interactions. And when we compare them to other spasticity treatments, as you well know, and I'm sure our listeners well know, those aren't without side effects either. The drowsiness um, is certainly, I think, one of the biggest ones and those overlap. The rest, a little bit different. So hopefully that sort of gives you a bit of a flavor.
1: So that's fantastic. Um, One point that you addressed that uh, I think is worth emphasizing, because at least in my patient population, it comes up quite regularly, um, is whether there's any evidence for CBD alone. Um, In my experience, Um, patients have a lot of access to CBD products. Um, They they tend to have an impression that CBD and the CBD THC products have the same effects. Um, Can can you specifically address whether there's any evidence with CBD alone um, and whether this is an issue in your practice as well?
4: So it's definitely an issue in my practice. CBD is readily available. Here in Oregon, actually, THC is also readily available in any combination you might imagine. Um, but from different sources. Uh, certainly, for lots of reasons, patients are more comfortable using CBD, and we're a little bit more comfortable with them doing so. But actually, there really isn't clinical trial evidence on whether CBD helps with spasticity or not. I mean, it's, it sort of takes us into the realm of why do we do studies? We do big studies to answer what will happen to single people. And if patients say it's helping them, and not too worried except for drug-drug interactions, but I don't have evidence to support it, no.
1: Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And I'm glad to hear you say that because that's uh, that's more or less what I tell my patients also. Um, so moving along from that, um, can you describe uh, the products that are currently available in the United States versus what's available in other parts of the world?
4: Well, the United States is not one big blob, it turns out. Even you and I are in different places and the availability of cannabis products is different. Here I am in Oregon where, yeah, you can get pretty much anything on, pretty much any uh, cannabis dispensary on most street corners. There's more of those than coffee shops, but you may not have the same experience in Baltimore. So I think that takes us to... What's going on in the United States? So cannabis is a Schedule I drug according to the federal DEA, so it has no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse according to the feds. Then you have state law which has legalized cannabis products differingly across the United States and then some states have legalized medical use and when they do MS or MS spasticity is typically on the list of medical indications, but not always. And a few states have also legalized recreational use, and this keeps changing. None of this is sort of FDA. This isn't like you go get your prescription medications where everything's clearly tested, labeled, and you know exactly what you're getting. It's, it's a very different world. So that's sort of one side of what's available in the US. We might ask, are there FDA approved products in the United States? There are no cannabis-based products in the United States approved by the FDA for MS spasticity. There's one CBD product that's approved for epilepsy, but that's it. But in the rest of the world, things are different. There is this one-to-one CBD THC oral mucosal spray, generically known as nabixamols. It's marketed under the brand name Sativex, and it actually has been approved in Canada and New Zealand and a whole bunch of European countries for MS-related spasticity, although always with restrictions. For example, in the UK, it's only for moderate to severe spasticity that has responded inadequately to other antispasticity medication. And that's kind of a typical restriction. They also say that the patient's response to Sativex should be reviewed after four weeks of treatment. That's outside the U.S. So that's kind of where we are. What's happening in the U.S. with this drug? Actually, just last year in 2022, because they had negative results from a phase three trial, they stopped the U.S. SADOPEX program. So who knows where that's going, but that's that's the current state of things.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for that um, really comprehensive and, and very informative answer. Um, and so I think I'm going to um, uh, skip ahead a little bit in putting all of that together. So you've described this very complicated uh, um, kind of current situation in the United States where there's no FDA approved products. The rules for medical and recreational uh, cannabis products is different among states. Um, So given what we currently know in terms of the the evidence behind um, the role of cannabis products in spasticity, um, the growing availability of these products, how do you counsel your MS patients uh, with regard to cannabis use, um, specifically with regards to spasticity and and, other MS-related symptoms?
4: Sure. So the first thing I counsel them, and I hope to have built enough trust that they'll do this, that if they're using or wondering about using cannabis or cannabis-based products for their MS or MS symptoms, please discuss it with me and their other healthcare providers so we know. Let's start there. And so we can help them understand side effects, understand drug-drug interactions, understand what they should or shouldn't be looking for. So just let me know. Talk about it. Don't hide it. I do let them know that there is research on cannabis in people with MS and that this generally does support that some products do reduce patient reported spasticity. The effect is modest and there are risks and side effects. And if they are going to try this, there are no FDA approved products. So they're going to get this. however they get medical marijuana in their state. Here it's dispensaries. This could be different in other states. And be be aware that the monitoring and enforcement of drug content and purity are less stringent than those that the FDA use and sometimes less effective. They don't have the same kind of funding. I think that's kind of it.
1: Well, uh, I found this very in- informative. Uh, I'm sure our audience will also. Um, and so thank you very much for for joining us um, and thank you for sharing your expertise on this topic uh, for the e-multiple sclerosis review.
4: You're absolutely welcome. As, as expected, it was a pleasure.
0: Fascinating conversation, doctors. Our learning objective is to discuss the safety and efficacy of new and emerging cannabis-based treatments for spasticity. The key points, Dr. Kornberg, that our learners should take away from your conversation.
1: The first key point is that randomized controlled trials do in fact support a role for cannabinoids in the treatment of MS-related spasticity, although the effects are modest and they have been seen with patient-reported symptoms but not clinician-rated spasticity. The second point is that the best evidence we have for effectiveness is seen with one-to-one THC to CBD um, combination products, uh, including an oromucosal spray that has been approved in several countries but not in the United States. Um, A corollary point is that there has been no evidence for benefit with CBD-only products, uh, which is a point of confusion for many patients. Um, A third point is that in the United States, even though uh, no products are FDA-approved, patients can access cannabinoids through medical dispensaries in states in which medical marijuana has been approved, but it's important to understand that these products are subject to lighter regulations, uh, and they have not been specifically studied in spasticity or in patients with MS. Um, and finally, particularly given the potential side effects and the limitations of cannabinoid therapies, patients should always discuss with their doctor before starting one of
0: these products. Thank you, Dr. Gornberg. We're about to wrap things up now, but I want to give you the last word on the topic. So if you would, please, doctor.
1: Well, I think we've had some great discussions uh, on really all aspects of spasticity, what it is. Um, how it's treated and and what the limitations of those treatments are. Um, I certainly learned a lot from our expert guests uh, and I want to thank each of them for joining us for this program.
0: And of course, our program director, Dr. Michael Kornberg, assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I also wanna thank all our eMultiple Sclerosis Review viewers, listeners and readers for your continued support. And to remind you, if you haven't already done so, go to emultiplesclerosisreview.org to read Dr. Kornberg's multimedia expert commentary on this topic. For Emultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at emultiplesclerosisreview.dkbmed.com. This eMultiple sclerosis review special edition is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Inc. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EMultiple sclerosis review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKP Med LLC. Thank you for listening.